Well, this morning we're looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians that perhaps you have as titled in your Bible, Christ the Wisdom and Power of God, or the Wisdom and Power of the Cross. This is our focus this morning. And yet, it comes on the heels of a concern. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. If you were here the last two weeks, we have just introduced this book. And Paul is going to be beginning to address a number of concerns and questions that he sees and he's heard about in the church in Corinth. This is significant because he's seeing and hearing things that are concerning. And you might say, what does a church in Corinth so many years ago have to do with us? This is different than what we're experiencing today. We're in a different culture, a different land, and yet we're struggling. I'm struggling with the same kind of things as they. They were struggling with power and prestige, popularity. In fact, uh, Paul is appealing to them, and this is in verse 10 that uh, J.R. shared with us last week. This section starts, this concern starts by Paul appealing to them in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off by just affirming that Jesus, this man that walked the earth, was part of history, was the long-expected Messiah. He was the Christ. In fact, he is our Lord, the one that we bow down to, the one that is bringing in his kingdom. And yet in verse 10, it continues and says that this is his appeal, that you all agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united, the same mind and the same judgment. How quickly do we get divided? And verse 11 states this very report. There's quarreling among the brothers. It says in verse 12, what I mean is that each one is saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here's the concern Paul is hearing. And he begins addressing it in verse 10. And he's actually not going to finish until the end of chapter 4. One of nearly a dozen things that will come up in this letter. But Paul wants it to be clear that Christ didn't come to divide. Christ came to unite us. In fact, this is the appeal that Paul has. 
that should sound a little bit familiar to us. I'm going to include a few passages this morning. Don't feel like you need to turn there. But I thought it appropriate to read a few passages as we go through this morning. Because it's God's word that changes us from the inside out. Not my eloquence, not my ability to keep you attentive or even awake, but it's God's word that has the power, has the wisdom. Listen to a passage in John 17. This is just before Jesus goes to the cross. In fact, John 17 is what is referred to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this for his disciples in verse 22. The glory that I have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is the purpose that God had in store. This was Jesus' prayer. In fact, Paul is affirming this, appealing that this same unity would be present in the church of Corinth. And in all actuality, he's appealing to you today that we would be of the same mind, the same judgment. But the reality is, the church of Corinth, and sadly to say, most of us, we just miss the point. We focus not on God and what he's done, but we focus on man. And we build ourselves up, make much of ourselves, instead of making much of God. And this is exactly what they had done. But missing the point is, is summarized in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's not a comparison thing. We're not keeping track how many people did Paul baptize in comparison to some of these others that are mentioned. It's about proclaiming this good news, this gospel message, this word of hope, this word of life. He continues in verse 17 to say, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Today we're going to be unpacking what does it look like to empty the cross of its power? What is Paul getting at here? What is this message of the gospel? Now, there's a lot of things that we have in life that have meaning and purpose and value, but sometimes we completely miss the point. So I brought something along. I'm a little bit older, so my PowerPoint today is more of a 3D nature. <laughs> you might see this laying around in my garage. You might say to yourself, 
Roger needs to tidy things up. He's got stuff laying around that is worthless, meaningless. But you actually might have been concerned when we moved to Darwin because I looked for this very piece of wood for about an hour. (laughs) For about an hour. What value does this have? It's a scrap piece of wood. Really? Well, this piece of wood has traveled with me for a long time. I think we've moved at least three or four times utilizing this. Now, we could sit around and guess, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of this? Why does it have value to this silly guy up front? Well, the point is, you would have to ask the person of origin that designed it, that gave it meaning, that, uh, that uses it as a tool, and ask them. You would have to say, Roger, what on earth do you use this for? Well, the reality is, I use this every time we move to put up all of our shelving and to take it all down. Have you ever had that metal shelving that you cut your fingers on or you try to figure out how you're going to put it together without damaging it? So you need something soft, but you need something hard enough to actually make it move. So we have big shelving in our garage and it's moved around a lot. And you can see it's been um, used a lot as a tool for that purpose. But this is just a silly example of how many times We sit around trying to guess the purpose and meaning and value of things. Sadly, we do this with ourselves. (laughs) We look in the mirror and we say, what gives me value? What gives me meaning and purpose? But we never stop to ask who created us. We never open this book. Many of you may have one of these. We call it the Bible. It's not very big. Well, this one's not because it doesn't have any notes in it. And it doesn't have any notes because I need the print large enough so I can see it. (laughs) But what we find in here is the wisdom of God. In fact... It starts off in Genesis by telling us God created. In the beginning, God created. In fact, in John 1, it says that the word, the spoken word of God, the origin of life became flesh, dwelt among us. In fact, we've seen his glory on display but we've seen it as he's been displayed on a piece of wood. It seems ludicrous to see the coming Messiah on a cross. So today we started the service with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. When we look at a long-expected 
Messiah coming, bringing in his kingdom, rescuing us from our bondage. What is our expectation of this Messiah? Well, the expectations were different depending on what you were looking for. But to most, it says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is involved in this cross to make the difference between a waste a shameful capital punishment on a cross and the forgiveness and salvation of our very souls. What makes this difference in identifying foolishness versus the power of God? Well, verse 19 gives us a start of some clues. So this first little section here is for us to consider this message of the cross. Paul says that wisdom and power is on display in the cross, but first let's consider this message. It says in verse 19, for it is written, Quoting from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now this first point that Paul is making might seem a little bit unusual. But in fact, if you go to Isaiah 29, you'll see that it's in the context of something bigger. Let me read a few verses. It says, and the Lord says, because this people draws near with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. It's in the midst of that that the wisdom of the wise perish. The discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Well, when we look at the cross, when we examine it, and yet we're reliant on our own wisdom, it just appears to us as foolishness. But Isaiah is reminding us that this was part of God's purpose. This was part of his plan. The cross is designed for us to see a different way in which the Savior came. He didn't come as what was expected. It was completely different. And secondly, in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world 
did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Part of God's plan was to use the foolishness expressed through this gospel to show us that it's nothing of our own wisdom. It's only the power of God. Additionally, in verse 22, he continues by saying, For, for Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Jews were expecting a sign. They were expecting the beginning of a kingdom that was going to be on earth. God was going to send a redeemer, a king, and they had expected him to come in power as one of the other kings that maybe they had observed in history. But Christ didn't come like they expected. In fact, he came as a child, born to a virgin in a manger, out of the sights and sounds and pizzazz that we would expect from a king. And verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is going to turn upside down the things that look foolish so that we cannot claim anything in them. The gospel message is very simple. It's very clear. God has come, reconciled us to himself. It was us that turned away from him. You just have to read Genesis chapter 3. It didn't take long, just a couple of chapters. God created us, and we quickly turned away. In fact, this is our nature even today. We turn away from him. We seek our own kingdoms. We seek our own wisdom. But God turns that on its head and says, I will come to you as a child. I will come to you humble, meek, lowly. I'll come to you in what is considered the foolishness of the cross. The Jews expected a sign. Jesus said to them, you will not see any sign except for Jonah, the sign of Jonah. So the prophet Jonah was in the belly of a whale or a big fish for three days, three nights. So shall the Son of Man be. This is the sign that would be given. 
It was a stumbling block to them. It wasn't what they expected. And to the Greeks, it was just foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to put your faith and trust in a dead Messiah. They couldn't get past the cross. Perhaps even you today are considering and wrestling with this message. Perhaps you expected something else. Perhaps you look at this message today and you just think, how could I believe that? And yet, for those that turn to Christ and are saved through the cross, it is indeed the power of God. I've experienced that myself. I'm not the same as I used to be. The things that I value today, besides this, the things that I value, the things that I put my trust in, the things that give me meaning and purpose are completely different. The power of the cross changes us from the inside out. This is the message of the cross. This is the message of the gospel. God intervened. God laid down his life. But secondly, Paul wants to, starting in verse 26, have us consider those that hear. What about those that hear this message and turn? What about the guy up front that says it's changed his life? Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. Well, that's me. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing, actually, to recognize often God chooses the unexpected. If you were God, <laughs> who would you choose? It's interesting because we would base it on a completely different scale, wouldn't we? We would look at those that were most intelligent. We would assemble around us those that were wealthy, the ones that were the kind of the movers and the shakers. Things are going to get done with this team. Who did Jesus choose as his disciples? Fishermen? <laughs> Have you thought about that? Fishermen. Paul is writing. Paul is unique. Paul has been educated. But Paul recognizes that has actually made it more difficult. Paul was called by the will of God. 
We are called by the will of God. Consider your calling. Even though not many of us are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not of noble birth, verse 27 starts with the words, but God. But God. It changes everything. Paul writes in a different way than what we were seeing in Luke. In fact, it would be good for you to get to know Paul a bit better, (laughs) to understand how he writes. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, that latter half of your Bible, there's 27 books in the New Testament. How many does Paul write? Quite a few. Maybe there's a little debate in there, but I would say probably 13, (laughs) as far as I count. Quite a few, nearly half of them. But also keep in mind that even though a third of the New Testament is written by Paul, he doesn't write the most words. So as you get to know Paul, I would encourage you to also get to know someone else. Who wrote the most words in the New Testament? Any guess? Luke. That's right. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke in Acts. They're quite long. Paul writes 13 of these letters encouraging people in different ways. Get to know Paul. Get to know how he writes. He writes in verse 27, but God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Did you notice Paul uses the word chose a few times? It's not, it's not the first time we're seeing this in this letter. We've been chosen by God for a different purpose. God chooses the weak things in this world to make them strong. Those that are despised. God has a different plan, a different a different purpose than what we would have chosen. But he chooses that, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What we are highlighting today, what we hope to highlight every week, is the God of this book. This is where we find true wisdom. This is where we find true power to change. And verse 30 says, because of him, there's a result. When we're chosen by God, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be counted as a child of God? What does it mean to be adopted into his family? 
Well, Paul says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. But not only wisdom, righteousness. The righteousness that Christ lived out through Jesus until his death on the cross. A perfect life. That life died on the cross in our place. He took upon himself on the cross our sin, our guilt, and exchanged to us righteousness. When God looks down on us, those that he chooses, those that he has change from the inside out. God sees righteousness because of Christ. It continues to say, and sanctification, another big word. He makes us holy. Not because of our works. In fact, Paul would say they're just a bunch of filthy rags, our works, our attempts of meriting God's favor. But because of Christ's work on the cross, he's made us right with God. He's made us holy, sanctifying us. But he continues to sanctify us as we struggle. Like we talked a little bit last week about this wrestle that's inside of us. We're new, we're changed. We're part of the family of God. And yet we struggle. We still want to do our own thing. There's this battle going on in our life. But God, in his grace, through Christ, is continuing to make us holy, to sanctify us. And redemption. We have been redeemed because of Christ's work on the cross. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been made and brought in to the family of God. Verse 31 starts with, so that. So here's the result. What is the result of being in Christ? As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise men boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. He practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is where we find our boast. This is where we make much of God. Not much of ourselves, much 
of God. This is the response that this message of hope is intending. This message of the cross. But thirdly, not only do we need to consider the message, consider those who hear, but lastly, we need to consider those who proclaim. What is it like for us to go from here into our week and proclaim this message? What is it like? Well, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Isn't that one of our big excuses about sharing the gospel, this message of life with those around us in the workplace or that cross our path during the week? If only I knew a better method. If only I knew a a better way of sharing the gospel. If I were more confident in the facts. Maybe I just need a bit more practice. Paul says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. In fact, Paul says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We don't need to know all of the answers before we share this good news with others. We just need to know the basics. What Christ has done on the cross, not only dying in our place, but rising again. Christ has made it possible through his sacrifice on the cross that we can be reunited with the Father through the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a simple message. It just requires us like Moses required those in the wilderness. I don't know if you remember the story of those that were bitten by the snakes, that were grumbling and complaining and getting into mischief. (laughs) Well, Moses raised up in the midst of that under God's direction a pole, a serpent, a bronze serpent, And what was required to be healed? Only simply to turn, to look, to believe. The gospel message is not that complicated. But it's incredibly hard to believe. In fact, I'll dare to say, it's impossible unless God intervenes, opens our eyes, helps us to see. Only God changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So when we go, we don't need lofty speech. In fact, we don't need a lot of wisdom. Keep it simple, says Paul. 
And as I was with you, verse 3, in weakness and in fear and in trembling, Paul had a posture, a weight, a stewardship of this gospel. He recognized there was nothing he could say to convince you. He was completely reliant on the Holy Spirit speaking through him. That's important when we share this good news, when we live it out, that people would hear the truth, the spoken word. We need to open our mouths. But may we approach sharing the gospel in a posture of prayer and dependence on God. In fact, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for that kind of posture. Do you remember in the New Testament, there's a story that is shared about a Pharisee that comes into the temple, saying his prayers and noticing a tax collector on the other side, saying, I'm so glad I'm not like him. (laughs) And he lists out a whole bunch of things that he does that are good, but he believes are meriting his salvation. But there is the tax collector, beating his chest, crying out to God for salvation. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for us to cry out for help, to turn to him. So verse 4 says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in fact in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's a demonstration seeing God at work. I reckon it's probably one of the most compelling reasons for me to want to share the good news, the gospel. Do you realize when you see and you come alongside of someone who has no hope, who can see no purpose in another day, and you offer words of life, they see it, they embrace it, and their life is changed. You see firsthand a miracle of God. This is the demonstration of the power, the Spirit of God. What kind of result would that have on your life? Verse 5 says, so that, again, look for these words when Paul writes, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. What had happened to Paul? Why was he so passionate about this message? His life was completely turned upside down. Do you remember Paul? 
his early life, he was actually called Saul. He was actually leaving Jerusalem and heading out, out of town with authorization to round up all these people that are proclaiming this funny new teaching. He was going to put them in prison. And yet on the road there was a bright light that knocked him to the ground and he heard these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was Jesus speaking directly to him. It changed his life. Is Jesus speaking directly to you? Today we need to consider this message. We need to consider what does it look like to hear, to respond. And as we do, what does it mean to proclaim this good news? Paul, in another book, writes in a small paragraph (laughs) this impact on his life. What kind of impact does this gospel message, this wisdom and power of the cross have on Paul? Philippians chapter 3 puts it this way. But whatever I gain, or I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What did Paul gain? (laughs) He was at the very top of being a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had done everything right. There's a whole list of things ahead of this. He counts it all as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul saw this Jesus, this carpenter who had walked on the earth, whom he thought was spreading and teaching false doctrine and seeked to silence both him and the disciples. Paul recognized that he was the Messiah. In fact, his Lord. He continues by saying, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul's life was completely changed because the dead Messiah rose had victory over death and reigns 
at the right hand of God. This is who Paul had placed his faith in. This is who Paul is presenting and urging us to today to be united in. May we turn to Christ. May we be united in the same mind, but also mindful of the same judgment. The message of the cross is both good news and bad news. For those that are being saved, it's the power of God. It's life. For those that have turned away from God, it's the reality of a coming judgment. These are the truths that we hold to. But we recognize, as Paul also says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you. Does that sound familiar? He who began a good work in you will be faithful until its completion. This is the God that Paul is presenting If you were listening the last two weeks, you would have seen the God who calls, the God who sanctifies, the God of grace, the God who sustains us to the end. God is faithful. May we be faithful to proclaim, to embrace, to see the wisdom, the power, in the cross. Let's pray. Lord, again we come this morning to you. We have nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in him. O ye who are weary, heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. Lord, you have presented so clearly. We are asking for a miracle. Make this truth implanted into our hearts so that we will be changed, continue to be changed, more and more like you. That we would be found in Christ. Consider all else as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing power of this message, this hope, this life, this cross, this resurrection. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray this for your ultimate glory. Amen.